Spinosaurus, the largest carnivorous dinosaur ever. And they're learning more about them. And it's really cool how they're figuring this out. They're using bone density. It's going to be a fun conversation. So we're going to chat now with Dr. Jingmei O'Connor, who is an associate curator of Fossil Reptiles Field Museum in Chicago and the co-author of the study. Dr. O'Connor, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's always fun to to talk dinosaurs with people. It sure is. I love it. I can't get enough of it. So we're talking about Spinosaurus, which I came to learn is the largest carnivorous dinosaur ever, which blew my mind. So describe a Spinosaurus for us. What are we What are we talking about here? Well, Spinosaurus, um, the name spines. You might infer that it's got spines somewhere. So it has on its on its dorsal vertebrae, like the, the the neural spine that's present on all dinosaur dorsal vertebrae, is extremely elongated, so that it would have had this big fan-like structure on its back, like if you think of a of a, a, a an extinct animal like Dimetrodon, right? That, that's yeah. that. Um, non-mammalian synapsid that has that fan on its back. Spinosaurus had a very similar-looking fan. Uh, another one of its very specialized characteristics is that it has, like, it, people often call it, uh, well, another member of this group called Suchomimus means crocodile mimic. So all of them have these very elongate, very narrow snouts mm-hmm. with peg-like teeth that look a lot like what you would see in a, an extant crocodile. So I would say those, those are the two most defining characteristics of Spinosaurus. How big was it if it's bigger than a T-Rex? It was only a little bit bigger than a T-Rex. Like It's uh, estimated to be about 15 meters long or 49 feet for us Americans. So that's just a foot or two longer than okay. the largest T-Rex like Sue. So not... not- that much bigger, but but bigger still. Now, enlighten me on this debate about whether or not they lived on land or lived on water. And Sarah was just talking about Jurassic Park and its involvement in that in that uh, franchise. So, w- was this a, a raging debate as to whether or not these these creatures were water animals or land animals? If you know, if you are one of these you know big dinosaur enthusiasts who likes to go on social media a lot, then yes, it was this. This, this big debate. Everybody got really, you know, I don't know, like very emotional about whether or not <laughs> whether or not Spinosaurus was foraging in the water. So we know that it lived on land, but the question was whether or not it was swimming in water okay. to hunt for food, or just wading around in shallow water and and catching fish. Because we know that it ate fish, not only because of the shape of its snout and its teeth, but also because some specimens have been found with fish remains inside the stomach. But the thing is, like, almost all, all dinosaurs, except for Spinosaurus, are purely terrestrial animals. They all live on land. They do everything on land. Uh, you know, except living dinosaurs, we do have some living dinosaurs, like penguins, that will forage in water, but then do the rest of their, they, they, will, they will sleep and they will breed on land. But this is something that's really weird because other groups of reptiles have evolved to go all the way back in the water and like never come out, right? Like even mammals have done this in the case of whales. And, uh, you know, in the past, there's all these other extinct animals that people confuse with dinosaurs, like plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs, mosasaurs. These are other lineages of reptiles not related to dinosaurs, that became fully aquatic. Now, this has never happened in dinosaurs, which is just really strange. But Spinosaurus seemed to be somewhere intermediate, like it actually possibly was swimming. So, uh, you know, the first, uh, so, well, I mean, there's like a really interesting history with Spinosaurus, but I'll just cut through to cut back to like the early 2000s. The first really good specimen of Spinosaurus has been found. 
uh, in Morocco. And uh, at first, you know, just parts of it were found. And then people started suggesting that maybe it was semi-aquatic. And then they found the tail. And the tail looked like it was kind of like, like a paddle-like tail, like kind of like you would see in an eel, like seemed like something that was very much adapted for swimming. It also has these very broad feet that seem like they might be a little bit paddle-like. Uh, but then, you know, this is just qualitative assessment of the skeleton, right? Scientists are looking at it and say, hey, I think that maybe this was, these are adaptations for swimming. But then other paleontologists would look at the same bones and say, nope, (laughs) these are not adaptations for swimming. This animal is on land, right? So, So how do you move away from these type of qualitative arguments, just like two paleontologists with different interpretations? And you can't really, you know, that doesn't get you anywhere. I think this, well, well, I disagree with you. I think that, right? So um, what my postdoc, Matteo Fabri, who led this study, decided to do was to find some other kind of signal that is true across all animals, regardless of interpretation, that can shed light on, w- on what animals are doing, not just Spinosaurus, but any animal. So what he decided to do was look at bone density, because it had already been noticed that Spinosaurus had really dense bones. Okay. But is this something that uh, is unique to Spinosaurus, or is it something that, in, like, that, does it indicate if this animal was living in water? Is this a signal that can be used like, across all animals? So what he did is he went around uh, getting, like, checking the bone density and, you know, in birds, in mammals, in, in crocodiles, in, in other swimming, you know, marine reptiles that went extinct long ago and looking at their bone density and then analyzing this using some fancy statistical methods to see what interpretation best fit the data that we saw. And the interpretation is that animals that live in water have denser bones. Now, there are a couple exceptions that you have to take into account when you're interpreting this data. For example, sauropod dinosaurs, Mm -hmm. those really big ones on land with really long necks. They also have dense bones, and also things like elephants have dense bones. But this is because they're really heavy animals Just carrying the weight on land. Yeah. So, but their dense bones are only in their legs. The rest of the skeleton is not dense because the legs have to like support all the weight, right? Okay. So that's how you can like you know tease out those different the different signals in this data. But uh, but looking at bone density uh, across the skeleton in Spinosaurus, the entire skeleton is dense. So you can rule out that the density is just related to its weight. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, this density that you see matches kind of like what you see in, in animals like penguins or hippopotamuses, like that also are animals that spend a lot of time in water. Aquatic, yeah. Why, why? Why Why do you need bone density to live in water? Yeah, this is to, uh, to counteract buoyancy, right? Like, so okay. most of us, okay. we're, you know, we have so much water in our bodies that we tend to, to float. So if you have denser bones, then it helps you to really get to dive underwater and really, like, swim around underwater foraging for prey. Interesting. So now, sounds to me like, I mean, this is convincing to a guy like me, but I imagine the fight continues with scientists, right? Like, is this, or has this settled the debate? Well, for the the vast majority of scientists are are really excited about about this data set. They recognize how much work went into it, and they recognize that this is a very clear signal. However, you know, I always say the number one thing that holds science back is, like, is the ego in all of us. Like, some people (laughs) just can't admit they're wrong. And I just, to all you future scientists out there, 
the most important quality is to be able to say you're wrong. Because all we're doing is making hypotheses on available data. And when you have new data, you've got to adjust these hypotheses. Yeah. Some people have trouble doing that. So, you know, the, the debate continues. But I would suggest it's primarily for that reason. Doctor, thank you so much. Awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us.